Hello, this is Harry Thomason, and welcome to The Story You Never Heard, executive produced by Benji Gaither and Douglas Jackson. On this podcast, we'll tell you stories about the world, your country, your people, and things that happened long ago and not so long ago. Stories you probably never heard until now. Here's tonight's tale. The Storm That Built a Highway Henry was born in 1830 in Hopewell, New York, to a Presbyterian minister named Isaac and his wife Elizabeth. At the age of 14, he left to go to work in a relative store in Republic, Ohio. He later went on to work with his half-brother in a grain business in Bellevue, Ohio. After that, they started a salt mining and production company together in Saginaw, Michigan, which eventually went out of business because, well, the North and the South were at odds, and the commercial demand for salt had dried up, if you'll pardon the pun. Henry lost $100,000 in that venture. He then returned to Bellevue and got back to selling grain and paying back his tremendous debt. It was during this time that he met John. John was also in the grain business, but he had his eye on oil refining. And together with John's chemist friend, Samuel, they started an oil company partnership in 1867. Now, they decided to use their surnames, Rockefeller, Andrews, and Flagler. No doubt you're familiar with at least one of those names. Yes, that John D. Rockefeller. Needless to say, they picked the right business to be in, and they're well soared. Just three years later, Rockefeller and Flagler, that was Henry's last name, started the Standard Oil Company. Many years later, when Henry's first wife fell ill, his doctor recommended that they head south to escape the northern winter. They wound up in Jacksonville, and Henry got his first taste of the Sunshine State. His wealth and his expertise in logistics from shipping oil around the country, combined with his newfound love of Florida, led to the construction of hotels and railways to make it easier for people to get to and stay in this beautiful place. He purchased a bunch of short-line railroads that would later become the Florida East Coast Railway. By 1896, Henry's Railroad had reached as far south as Biscayne Bay. He dredged, he built streets, he built infrastructure. When the city decided to incorporate, the people wanted to honor the father of their town by calling it Flagler. He humbly declined, suggesting they name the town after the 16th century name of what is now Lake Okeechobee, but was then called... Lake Miami. Miami it became. The growth didn't stop there, and in 1905, Henry set his sights on Key West as the terminus for his Florida East Coast Railway. Back then, Key West was the most populous city in Florida. It was also the United States' deep water port closest to the forthcoming Panama Canal. In 1912, the Florida Overseas Railroad was complete. In true Flagler fashion, Henry rode into Key West on the first train to complete the journey in his private rail car and to mark the completion of the railway that ran the entire east coast of Florida. Some called it the eighth wonder of the world, a practical marvel of engineering at the time. Henry only lived about a year to see his vision operate, and he died on May the 20th, 1913, in Palm Beach. The Overseas Railway ran for many years after that, until September the 2nd, 1935. Now, back in 1921, the Miami Motor Club sought to connect the mainland with the Keys by way of a road, an easier way for people to get to the best fishing areas that were only accessible by boat or rail. On January the 25th, 1928, the Overseas Highway, 
designated State Road 4A was officially open to traffic. It existed in two very disconnected segments, one from the mainland to the lower Matacumbe, and another from No Name Key to Key West. Now, drivers wishing to reach the Wesley Islands could take a ferry to cover the 41-mile gap in the roadway. Automobiles became more popular in the Keys, and by 1931, there was a 13-mile stretch of road in Marathon as well. The need for a completed road was obvious, and in the mid-30s, construction started on connecting the remaining islands by road. In 1935, the first section of bridge from Lower Matacumbe to Long Key was just getting underway. Late August of 1935 saw the formation of a tropical depression over the Bahamas. That depression quickly strengthened and became a hurricane. The storm's intensity increased and it turned toward the Florida Keys. And on the morning of September 1st, the Weather Bureau put out an advisory for the impending storm. The U.S. Coast Guard station Miami made a flight over the Keys, dropping message blocks, warning boaters and campers about the weather bearing down on these tiny islands. They made a second flight that afternoon to send the message again before hanging their planes and closing up tight. Along with boaters and campers, there were many people working on the highway expansion. Almost 700 of them were World War I veterans and their families. They lived in shacks and small clusters of camps on low-lying islands. At 2 p.m. on Monday, September the 2nd, the Florida Emergency Relief Administration requested a train be sent to evacuate the veterans working in the camps. The skies darkened and the pressure continued to drop. The train, consisting of 11 cars, departed Miami at 4.52 p.m. The typically short journey was struck with delays, an open drawbridge, obstructions on the track, poor visibility due to weather. They also had to back down the whole length of the track so that they could head out on the return. The train eventually arrived at Alamora Station at 8.20 p.m. At the same time, the wind shifted and the storm surge arrived. This storm will be what we call today a Category 5 hurricane. Powerful, destructive, unrelenting, with an eye estimated to be nine miles across, the storm made landfall. The storm surge washed over the islands. There was virtually nothing left above water. The wind was blowing over 180 miles an hour. All 11 cars on the train were knocked from the tracks, leaving just a heavier locomotive and tender upright. Amazingly, every passenger on the train survived. Those in the work camps were not so fortunate. The combination of the wind and the storm surge destroyed just about every single structure. From Tavernier to Marathon, hundreds of lives were lost that night. The persistent wind and high seas continued into Tuesday, hampering any rescue efforts. The area was devastated. Much of the railway was destroyed. Every single thing linking the islands to the mainland was unusable. Eventually, the rescue efforts began. The cleanup began. The task of finding and identifying the bodies began. Mass graves were dug and filled. Bodies were cremated. Over 400 people perished in that storm. On the overseas highway at mile marker 82 in Alamorada stands the Hurricane Monument in honor of those that died. The Florida East Coast Railway could not avoid to repair the damage. The defunct railroad was sold to the state of Florida. The state used most of the existing track bed as a path for the road, converted the rail bridges for automobile traffic, and continued to build the highway. 
1938, the road built on Henry Flagler's path was complete, and the newly named Overseas Highway finally connected the Florida Keys to public automobile traffic. If you've ever been to the Florida Keys, you know that it is one of the most beautiful, most scenic drives you can take in America. And you have thousands of people to thank for the opportunity to take that drive. And while you're there, there's another monument, unseen, unmentioned, sitting quietly in the water near mile marker 73 on the Gulf side. A small dredged island named Veterans Key and eight bridge piers, often called the Coffins. They're all that remain of the 1935 expansion of the Overseas Highway. A quiet reminder of the lives lost on the evening of September the 2nd, 1935. Well, that's our story for tonight, and we hope you enjoyed it. We want to thank our friends over at What's Happening in the Florida Keys for providing this week's story. Go visit them on Facebook. The link is in the show notes. If this is your first time here, why not check out the rest of the catalog? We've been at this for about a year now, and we have so many great stories in previous episodes. If you like what you hear, be sure to share this podcast with your friends and family, and leave us a review wherever you're listening. Your reviews and ratings go a long way in helping other listeners find us. If you'd like to help us as we research and write more exciting shows you've never heard, you can make a small monthly contribution by going to anchor.fm slash T-S-Y-N-H, for the story you never heard, of course, and clicking on the support button. You can give as little as 99 cents or as much as you want, but you don't have to give anything, and we're still here, and we're still free. We appreciate each and every one of you, and thank you for giving us your time each week. We'll see you next week with a brand new story you never heard. Have a good night, everyone. Come visit us on the web at thestoryyouneverheard.com and facebook.com slash T-S-Y-N-H. This show is executive produced by Benji Gaither and Douglas Jackson. Our technical consultant and website administrator is John Balderston, and Justin Nichols is our editor.